Eva Turner, thank you so much for coming in today. I appreciate you, your time and you joining me for this episode. I'm excited to talk to you a little bit. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Thank you. Uh, I guess I could just start out with one question for you and then we could just get into a conversation. But the first question is, when you were growing up, like what type of student were you? Like, did you, were you really into school as a young person and that kind of led to the career in education? I was a pretty good student. I was, um, but I don't think it really mattered to me until I got into college a lot. I mean, I had credentials to get into good places and, um, but it really started to flow when I got in there and uh, intellectual discovery became very exciting, Mm -hmm. loved it. English major, happy thereafter. So, but the, um, I was really planning to go into law. Mm. And I just started teaching um, just to do something while I was really converting to law school. But I loved it right away, right away. And I said, this is it, this is for me. Hmm. Did you start teaching, was your first teaching job at Bryn Mawr or were you somewhere before that? I was there in a big public high school in Old Tapan, New Jersey. Hmm. And then um, when I, we moved to Baltimore, then the job at Bryn Mawr opened up. And it was a very different universe, the private school from the public school domain. But again, I loved it and I said, this is where I want to stay. Hmm. What was the difference for you? I went to a public school for high school. I see some differences for sure. I went to a pretty good public school outside of Philadelphia called Conestoga. But there are definitely a lot of differences that I find teaching here at Gilman. Well, maybe you will relate to this. First of all, students never talked to faculty very much. There wasn't a whole lot of direct interaction that you see in a private school. That, to me, was the main one. Also, the size of the classrooms. My goodness, there were 50 kids in an English class. Mm -hmm. And you had, no, I'm sorry, I take that back. That's ridiculous. 50's a lot. 50's a lot. There were 32 students, but I had five sections. And grading all those papers, it was it was overwhelming uh, at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was a new teacher, and I didn't know any better, and I loved it. So I put in the time, and we did it. And then uh, coming to private school, it was much more manageable in terms of for a teacher. Yeah. What was it about English that first attracted you and caught your eye when you went to college? Or was it before then that you found English? You know, that's a, that's a really question, a good question. What is it? I found I would be drawn in by the language, the way the writer would construct the piece, whatever it was, and uh, the flow of the sentences. I found the whole vision of humanity, uh, intriguing and enlightening. Did you always love to read? Always loved to read. Yeah. Always loved to read. That's like me too. I think I was always reading a book growing up, still am, but that's what first caught my eye is just the the love, the curiosity of reading more. Yes, yes. Um, And it... 
exploring different yeah. people's lives and their thoughts and emotions and philosophies. I guess that's what first attracted me to English. Yes, yes. But now um, that I'm retired, it's hard to find really good fiction to match some of the fiction that I would teach in the classroom, having teach, taught masterpieces. And then finding that caliber is, is hard. Fortunately, I have some uh, good Gilman friends who give me great suggestions. And maybe that's why I'm drawn to um, murder espionage fiction now, because it's a different realm of, um, of literature, you know, it just, it, it's more, uh, um, who did it? Who, it, it spurs your intellectual uh, muscles. I would love to hear more about that because I've never really got into the, to the mysteries. And I think, I think I hear your point about the, like the deep text. Cause my, my mom, whenever I'm home, I'm reading some book and she's like, why are your books always so dark and, you know, deep? And that's just kind of, I don't know, as an English teacher, that's what I like to read. I like to think a lot. So I like I, the, I do too. I the do intense too. books. I like it. And I think the, the murder mystery um, uh, was introduced to me by, by Carrie Woodward, who was a longtime teacher here at Gilman. And he uh, introduced me to Henning Mankell, a Swedish murder mystery writer. And it was superb. And then more. I wanted more and more, and that has... Um, I've gone on from there. Mm -hmm. But they are pretty dark. And my kids tease me about, oh, Mom, it, uh, she only likes British murder mysteries or, but, you know, that have a murder. I, it has to have a murder, grisly murder. <laughs> but I liked the detective part of it. How are you going to solve this chaotic situation? Mm -hmm. And things are generally put to rights at the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, some nuances left, and that's always good. But you see the struggle of the good guys making things okay. Hmm. I was telling my class before I met with you this morning, I was teaching a leadership character class, and uh, I told them, because I'm having them do as a project, a podcast interview type thing with a leader that mm -hmm. they know or a person of character that they know, and I told them that I'm interviewing you today or talking to you today. And uh, I said, look, I'm really excited for this because Eva Turner was in the world of education for 41 years, right? Mm -hmm. 40 years. Mm -hmm. I've only been doing it for five years at Gilman. I've been here for five years. You're like, uh, I'm like a baby compared to you. And I'd yes, love, you are. I'd love to hear um, teaching English, what that experience, like if, if you're giving advice to an English teacher kind of early on in their career, what you would say to that that person or what you really liked about that job, English teacher? Well, with regard to your leadership class, I think that the classroom was um, the laboratory for future leadership positions because you are a leader in this small group and it's all about preparation, uh, attendance to the needs of all of your students, as diverse as they may be, um, showing a direction about where you're going, um, having a plan, and all that is what I did as upper school head. And so as an 
English teacher, that could take you virtually anywhere in life, I felt, of the experience. Not necessarily so much English as being a classroom teacher. It's just a wonderful preparation for anything you can do. Mm-hmm. And I think I think being in front of the classroom and standing up there and having a plan yes. and yes. getting people motivated and excited at eight o'clock in the morning. Yes, indeed. You could take that anywhere, I think. Yes. It's a wonderful experience. So I'm glad and, and education provided um, a path that you could do many things. You could be only in the classroom or then you could veer off into different kinds of leadership roles, whether you're there a form chair or um, an administrator of some kind. It's great. So correct me if I'm wrong. So you were teaching English at Bryn Mawr, and then you came to Gilman. And were you teaching English when you first came to Gilman, or were you in the college counseling office? Well, I was a college counselor at Bryn Mawr, and it was that college counseling piece that brought me to Gilman um, rather than my uh, experience as an English teacher. And so I came for the position as director of college counseling. And that was great fun because it was a bigger office than, not literally, but it had more individuals and so it was more of a team rather than a solo operation at Bryn Mawr. And so uh, things began there. And from that, um, the college piece went off to upper school head. What is it like being the director of college counseling for someone who may may want to do that or is interested in that? It is fabulous. It is fabulous. If you've got a slightly competitive nature, it's really good because you have – families who come in and you're working very intimately with families which is a great experience and you see how they may be worried or not worried about the next step and the aspirations everything kind of of their education coming together as they pursue the next step and you can help them chart a plan a strategy it's so much like coaching I think Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, you, uh, as a college counselor, are tested in your ability to communicate what you know, not only to the family, but to the colleges. So you're acting as a liaison, and not only personally, verbally, but also in writing. How do you capture that student in the school's recommendation? And that um, was really hard but enormously satisfying when you stepped away and say, I think I've got this wonderful person down on paper, and I really am excited about representing him or her. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that job from an outsider's perspective is how much you have to really know the students on a deep level. From my own experience writing college recommendations, I feel like I have to know very intricate details about them or memories from throughout the year to communicate what type of person they are. And it gets easier and easier as you get older. And it's amazing how you can, your brain just kind of soaks those details up and they come out as really valid representations of the individual. And what I also think is pretty cool is that in that seat, you can have such a influential hand in what 
decision the student makes, right? If you know that the student would be a really good fit at Dartmouth or at William and Mary, yes, like, you yes. bring that up and that's where they could go for the next four yes. years. I mean, you have to be very careful because uh, you do have families who have very high expectations that you know you have to modify. And at the same time, you have some kids who are afraid of striving, and you need to ramp them up. Mm -hmm. And um, so you have to know what the um, what the data communicates in terms of admissibility. So you've got to know the colleges and what they are looking for, the kind of individual they're looking for, and trying to make that match. So it goes, and then it just works out. It's great. Mm -hmm. Did you do a lot of visiting to different colleges in that I, position? I definitely did at the beginning. And then I think I got lazy. Um, I think I felt, gee, I think I know these places. Um, I think I'd rather stay here and write that recommendation rather than using the time. And then if we had a new person in the office, I would send the young person out <laughs> to, to do some visiting. Yeah. Uh, what is it like working on a team in that type of environment? It's it's, it's super. And and I think, um, well, I, I have a very collaborative style. I like knowing what everybody else is doing uh, out of curiosity. I like um, getting suggestions from the team members. Um, uh, I like a natural, relaxed environment so i find it feeds me it's something that's important to my nature mm -hmm. that social piece of working with others and learning from others it's really important yeah in some ways it's putting together a, a big puzzle throughout that season yes and you get great suggestions from one another have you thought of this college have you thought of that one and or are you sure or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, are you crazy? Right. <laughs> so if you can have that kind of team, it's great. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to ask you today that I'm, I've been wondering a little bit when thinking about your career is you started off at Bryn Mawr at an all-girls school and then you came to Gilman, both single-sex schools. And I think it'd be interesting to hear you talk about just the value of the single-sex education from Bryn Mawr, all-girls, to all-boys at Gilman. Well, I loved Bryn Mawr, um, and um, I also want to give a shout-out to Barbara Chase, who was the headmaster uh, for most of my tenure there, and she had uh, a team approach as well to all of the people, so as a college counselor, I could sit in on um, the administrative council and learn about the full operations of a school. But at Bryn Mawr, uh, uh, for girls' education, so much was about um, uh, actualization of uh, giving women a sense of power and entitlement to pursue anything they wanted. And that was great because you were working with really talented young women. And to say, you can do this, uh, this uh, is for you. And you had uh, women who were working extremely hard to develop their talents. And so I loved it. Um, it, it, was, it was great. Mm -hmm. 
And then when you came to Gilman, what's, I mean, what is from an administrative level, what are the differences in the way that we educate students, like at, from an all girls perspective? And yes, then it, all it was boys? very clear. At Gilman, you didn't hear a lot about you can do it. It would because it was assumed that as a male, you could do it. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was more about how are you going to create a code for your life? And so there was, and I've spoken about this before, it was much more conversation about integrity and honor and um, commitment to the community. Those were words and phrases that I did not hear used a lot at Bryn Mawr. Um, and that's not to disparage them in any way, but so it was a different take on the use of your education. Um, Which is probably in, important because you're trying to bring up a different, a different mind, like generally a different mind. Y yes, yes. Yeah. And yet um, you're still using the same skills as a person to um, uh, to bring out the best in every one of these individuals, male or female. Mm -hmm. What I think is a challenge for me, at least, is in, I teach 11th and 12th grade, and 11th grade is the first time that the girls and the guys come to the same classroom. And I always, you know, since my first year teaching here, that was the biggest hurdle for me was to try to get them comfortable with each other and almost put together that puzzle in the classroom of the Gilman boy, the Bryn Mawr girl, and then the Roland Park girl in the same room and have them interact and engage with each other. But I don't know. I, I think a lot about single sex education because I never went to a single sex school. And coming here, it's a lot more, the education is a lot more targeted in, in those specific ways. Right. But because you went to a co-ed high school, I'm sure it's pretty easy for you to create a good dynamic in that classroom, in that coordinated classroom, because you have the experience yourself. Mm -hmm. um, do you think you are targeting things in your coordinated classes? I don't think so. I no. mean, I don't think I look at any of my students differently at all. I just think of them yeah. as my students. Right. Right. It disappears. Mm -hmm. The gender components disappear. But I don't know if it does for them when they first come in the room because I think... Oh, they must be terrified yeah. for, the, for the women. I remember the first time I walked into the first day of the, my job here at Gilman, walked into Cary Hall, and I was just struck by how high the ceilings were. <laughs> and I thought, I am in a different country. Mm -hmm. Very different uh, they do things differently. I could feel it. And it wasn't terrifying. It was just different. Hmm. Did you think that, did you feel like you had to change your personality or your demeanor at all when you came here? No, or were you not just. Not really. Not really. I don't think I did. I just was very alert to the nuances and how people operated. Mm -hmm. And the faculty seemed very relaxed with who they were. And so it was kind of easy to, to, to fit in. Um, I didn't feel that people kept an arm's distance or, or anything like that. No, I felt, uh, just do your job. 
mm-hmm. and I did my job, and everybody was happy. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? What was it like uh, entering the role of the upper school head for you? And um, I guess as you entered that role as upper school head, what, what were your expectations? Like, what did you expect for the role versus what was kind of the reality of that position? It's a hard, hard job. Mm -hmm. Harder than I thought it was going to be. But it seemed like a natural step for me. I had been doing college counseling for a long time. And um, the job came, and I had wonderful models of upper school heads. Mercer, Neal, John Schmick, just named two, were fabulous and very approachable, wonderful uh, administrators. And um, so, uh, you know, when the job became open, I had a mother who uh, was a chemist and ran her own lab Hmm. all of my life, you know, so I had no trepidation about uh, having the presumption to apply as a woman. And I think the individuals around me knew my work, so I I think it was maybe a gutsy move on their part to appoint me but at the same time, they they knew who I was. Mm-hmm. And um, I've forgotten what you want me to talk about. I think really it comes back to leadership and how leadership. Oh, oh yes. So, the, so, right. It's about leadership, about making the trains run as an upper school head, making sure everything is okay, making sure that each individual is taken care of. But it's very hard now that the the population that you're dealing with is a thousand mm-hmm. not not a thousand but um over 400 rather than maybe 15 in a classroom so um and then you're interacting much more with their families you're dealing with the faculty right. in a whole different context and the faculty are are bright and uh have a lot of good things on their mind that may challenge you in um, their perspective. And so faculty meetings are often really interesting, as you may know. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. And I, I try to tell this to my students a little bit, too, because I think at least this was the case for me and my observation of this, I think, is true, is when you get to be a senior or a junior, you've figured everything out or you think you you have in some ways, you know your school, you're very comfortable, you can you can get a little bit too big for too cool for school or too big. And one thing that I, I try to subtly remind my students of is like there are so many people out there in the world who are just as smart as you are, just as hardworking as you are, that want things in life just as much as you do. And when you go to college, you know, you see that. And then when you go outside of college, the professional world, you see that. And then you're, I guess, competing with people who are all more talented, harder working, smarter. You know, I think that's an important reminder because I don't know, I think it's true when you get into a position like that, now you're all of a sudden dealing with faculty members who are all smart, thoughtful, hardworking. Yes, 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 indeed. But you have to think about, okay, what is my job? My job is to keep this community vibrant and safe and make sure everybody is taken care of to the best 
of our collective ability. Mm-hmm. And um, and if someone's got a better idea than I have, I welcome it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, you very much have to be open to uh, different ideas and also um, you have to really like a broad range of personalities because mm-hmm. you're going to be butting up with a lot of different types. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, did you did you coach much before this? Because I thought it was interesting that you described college counseling as a coach and when you were talking about the upper school head position, it does feel like a coach-like position. Well, I have two boys and they all participated in athletics and my husband did as well. And so there's always been a lot of chatter about coaching mm-hmm. in my household. So maybe it's just a natural term. I didn't, uh, the only team I coached was the ping pong intramural class here when I became upper school head so that I could model the teacher coach model. But uh, it was ridiculous, you know, it was, it was, but it was fun for a while. I love that. I wasn't very good at it though. Yeah. Well, but anyway. bring that back. Oh, We've got all those ping pong yeah, yes. well, I'm a great admirer of what coaches do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, as a coach, you have to think about all the different personalities on the yes. team and yes. appease everyone, make sure everyone's happy and bought in. It's not mm-hmm. easy. Nope. <laughs> uh, what are some of the, so when you became upper school head, what were some of the challenges that you really faced on a day-to-day level? Like what was really difficult about that job? I would say um, some t- hmm, some of the um, things like schedule conflicts and really um, stuff like that, making time for everything you wanted to do, finding time, um, assembly schedules, um, mundane things like that mm-hmm. but also very hard were disciplinary cases yeah even though we had wonderful deans of students and, and um, as an upper school head you are drawn into the disciplinary mode um, and those are very difficult because mm-hmm. you're trying to do the right thing for the school and also right thing right thing for the individual and his family so yeah yeah those are hard yeah balancing the necessity for discipline with the fact that you like the student you want to see them succeed you want to see them do well but discipline is going to be good for them and they might not always know that yeah the issues with uh, you know parents who have a complaint about what's going on with their son at school um, I found that my experience in college counseling helped a great deal with that aspect. And my wonderful colleague, Larry Malkus, gave me this wonderful line, well, if nothing changes, nothing will change. And so you can use that as your approach to some family disputes um, with regard to maybe a complaint with the teacher. So everyone do, has to do a little bit of changing to affect a good outcome. Hmm. Um, and so you're working with the teacher and you're working with the student and uh, to sort of recalibrate expectations. Hmm. And then things work out. Yeah. Um, I'm 
thinking a little bit about my leadership class too and the positions that you've been in and and in my class I've got some Gilman boys I've got Roland Park girls and Bryn Mawr girls as I said and um, I don't know I feel like I try to bring in a lot of different examples of what a leader is because there's no one type of leader like your leadership style is going to be different from mine it's going to be different from Cesare's yes, yes. and I think that's I could be wrong. I'm, you know, I'm doing my best with the class, but I think that's the best way to teach leadership is show examples of different types of leaders uh, and different types of character traits that lead to good leadership. But and as a leader, you have to change your mode. Your um, the issue at hand requires you to change your demeanor. You know, when you you can be relaxed and comfortable, uh, let's say, in a faculty meeting or at assembly, but there are times when you have to really muster something else when you're dealing with the school crisis and you're before the assembly and you have to have to find that voice in you, as I'm trying to uh, summon it up right this minute, mm-hmm. of serious seriousness of purpose of things that have to be done mm-hmm. so I think courage too I love that and I think that courage is so much at the center of boys education particularly by the way interesting why do you say that I'm not sure now let me let me think that, that <laughs> just blurted that out um I think boys do feel that they have to be courageous in their life, that they have to do the right thing, they have to um, be the leaders of their families. I mean, these are patriarchal um, sentiments I'm expressing. And, um, and boys can be very rough with one another. and. They often have to uh, summon up a lot of courage to get through the day, mm-hmm. through the their academic classes, if they don't feel that they're up to it, teasing from others. And this certainly applies to women as well. So, Yeah, and a lot of times it's very hard to mark courage or, or, or see it. It's just beneath the surface. And yes. um, as and a teacher just, and a leader, it's hard to... I guess draw that out and understand I guess what the student is is going through when it comes to courage mm-hmm. struggle right below the surface mm-hmm. um, it's a wonder we get through adolescence yeah it's a tough it's a tough time there's so many so many distractions too but you also need a lot of courage in daily life and so it becomes a training ground also for how be successful when you are courageous. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's funny because I, I asked you to bring a book recommendation today, but I actually brought one too. This one is pretty good. I just Grit? Yes, Grit. And uh, it's by Angela Duckworth. She's a professor, I think, at Penn. And she, a lot of it I think I've heard a lot before from playing sports. You know, you've got to be gritty and grit is important. Um, but she really defines what grit means. And it's a combination of passion for something and perseverance to overcome all the challenges that are in your way and that are going to get you, I guess, caught up. And um, 
I really like the first chapter. So I had my leadership class read the first chapter, which is about West Point. And West Point does something the first, I think it's at least the first week. I think it's the first two weeks when you arrive at West Point called Beast. And uh, it's like the just, it's a shock factor. It tries to weed you out. And they just put you through the toughest challenges. They don't Mm -hmm. let you sleep too much. They don't give you much food. They're trying to see who quits. And I remember my sister went to West Point and dropping her off there and getting her ready for that was kind of a nightmare because she didn't know what to expect. But she talks about the people that make it through this week because a lot of people quit. Mm-hmm. And they're, they got into West Point. like They were the model students in high school. They got letters from their congressmen and, and women. And they, you know, they made it there. And uh, they still quit. And she talks about the defining factor that allows them to get through is this, I guess, courage, passion, yes. perseverance, all Gr- those things I agree. are grit. In our household, it was always, we always talked about long division. Both of my sons really stumbled when it got to long divisions. And with both of the boys, I remember the session in the di- on the dining room table as I'm trying to explain long division because they didn't get it the first time in the classroom or the second or the third. And it would end invariably with tears and falling on the carpet. They couldn't do it. I can't do this, Mom. This is impossible. And then I said, and I would just say, just sit by me. Just sit by me and just watch what I'm doing. I'm this and I'm doing that and look at that. I don't understand, Mom. Just watch me again. Watch me again. Watch me again. And then suddenly they could start seeing the pattern and they could get through it. So whenever we have a problem on the table, we say, it's just like long division, you'll get through it. You just have to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Just sit sit there, return to it. I mean, it, that takes courage though. It's, it it's does. the courage to it return to courage. it. It takes courage rather than fleeing from the room. You have to sit and you have to give it another try. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's so important. I think that's important yeah. in everything. And that you said it takes courage in everyday life. And I yes. think there are some things that we do every single day that we don't want to do, you know, but we have to you bet. pull it out of ourselves somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, great. So if you could tell me a little bit more, I guess, about um, what it's like to, I guess, at assembly. Assembly is an important part of the of the day, and <laughs> yes. you're in front yes. of the entire. I mean, I watch Rob, Rob Hubeck in front of the entire school, and that. I mean, talk about being in front of the classroom, and I've got one guy on his computer and another guy <laughs> doing something else. But being in front of the entire room at assembly, what was that experience like? Well, you learn how to handle that situation. At first, your legs are shaking. I mean, and your voice is quivering. You think, ah, "How am I ever going to do this?" And then, so what you do is you rehearse a little bit beforehand, your opening monologue, so to speak, or whatever it is. My style was a little bit more um, formal than, than Rob's, but I did love the kind of give and take that sometimes happens um, in a assembly where a student might stand up and say something silly and um, or Dr. Thornberry would be there or, if I, yeah, I mean... Uh, it was great. It was, um, I don't know, you just learn the skill. Mm-hmm. And uh, after a while, it doesn't become terrifying at all. You could you start looking forward to it. 
Yeah, it's such an important time of the day for our school too because it's the one time that the entire upper school is together in the same space, in the same room. Right, right, exactly. And the students will see their teachers and, you know, we'll have guest speakers and we'll have, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just think it's one of the most important. I think advisory is very important too, but I really like the assembly time. I'd, I felt it was so essential for all of us to be together. Mm-hmm. And um, it just flowed. And a particularly dismissal to go to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> was hilarious but anyway uh, when you were teaching english uh what were your favorite books to teach or units to teach i loved shakespeare i loved teaching shakespeare all of my teaching career and i managed to teach it even though in the end i was teaching uh in the 11th grade uh the coordinated sections on which is primarily american literature and um there i loved sort of the wonky ones, the transcendentalists. I love the transcendentalists. Yeah, I really like them. And then I became more of a Hemingway fan than I thought. And um, I used to teach um, Edward Albee in the end. So that that was was great fun. But I'm really... And we used to teach Hamlet in the um, 11th grade. And so I'm a big fan. Oh, in American lit. Yes, because we didn't quite know where to put it. Uh, uh, 11th grade used to be a little bit more heterogeneous in terms of its selections, not just dedicated to a particular national literature. And so we found that Hamlet might be too hard for the younger students in the 10th grade. Mm-hmm. Um, but then everybody was doing coordinated classes and electives in the 12th grade, so we stuck it in. But then after a while... Um, um, Hamlet disappeared to my great sadness. <laughs> uh, what was your experience like in the coordinate classroom? Great, great. I loved it. It was uh, very easy since I had had a, a, a single sex experience with girls at Bryn Mawr and then now I had Roland Park students. It, it was great, mm-hmm. great. Liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think that's also a really great thing, important thing that. Gilman and the tri-school community does is you know because I had friends in college that went to single-sex schools and they get to college and they're like I've never had a class with girls in my life before and the girls consistently did their reading yeah that's true (laughs) not to disparage my my Gilman scholars right that is true though they they are especially at Bryn Bryn Mawr I mean Roland Park too but Bryn Mawr especially they are very very dialed in yep what is it? What is it over there that, that makes they do? it so? Yeah. Uh, well, because um, it seems like every year I have Bryn Mawr students in my class, and I never really have anyone falling behind. They're right there with me. There's a lot of pressure on women to be doing the right thing all their lives, mm-hmm. to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And especially when you put them all together in the same. Place. And boys are given a lot more license to be bad during their lives. Mm-hmm. Isn't it cute how he's waving that stick around? Mm-hmm. So I think there are some deep-seated differences there in how we raise children. Is that a is that a bad is that a bad thing? 
It's my observation. I don't know. I think it might be, it's hard then for women to shake that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that they can explore bigger boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. License for... That's why it's so good to have single-sex education for women because you can get at that. You can get... You can be everything you want to be. The band can be wider than you think, than you've maybe necessarily been raised with. Your, so, girl, your girls in your class might understand more what I'm talking about. Well, I just want to maybe play devil's advocate on the single-sex education for women because that's one thing I hear a lot is that it's really, really good for girls. And I, I don't know. I mean, I've never worked in an all-girls school, and I don't really have solid thoughts on that. But but is doesn't it get to be too much pressure competition at some points for girls being in the same place together maybe maybe without and, the license to misbehave like boys sometimes yeah, have yep yeah. so maybe that's why the coordination is really good for for women in this system that we have mm-hmm. that they get out of their particular tight-knit environment and come over to see what the boys are doing right right and oh my gosh did you see what they're doing over there they're relaxed they speak out, they, you know, there's a lot, it's a lot looser. Mm-hmm. And is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? At first it may seem horrifying, but then you realize there's a lot of power in that. Right. I always felt at a certain time that I wanted to go back to Bryn Mawr and tell them what I had seen over the mountain at the <laughs> other side of the street. Like, you could really, you might really like this approach. Yeah, and I think for the boys being in a coordinate class, they don't misbehave and mess around as much as they would because they're terrified of the girls. That's right. Which is great. It is. Yeah, I think the coordinate system is one of the best things that Gilman it does. It works out at just the right time. Yeah, and I wonder about that too. Is like, would it be beneficial to have coordinate classes earlier in tenth, like in tenth grade? Like, why wouldn't we have coordinate in tenth grade? Why eleventh grade? Why do we start then? I think boys aren't ready for it in tenth grade. I don't think. Hmm. Why? Why? Why does she say that? I think they're still a little goofy. Yeah. What do you think? I think you're right. And I think I, I haven't taught sophomores, but I think they're pretty, you know, it's it's a different atmosphere for sure. I think the 10th, 11th grade, just from my observations of watching other classes, the 10th grade and the 11th grade rooms are completely different because the boys are more serious in 11th grade. So are the girls because of college mm-hmm. and because they're now in the same room and they have to be conscious of each other. And in 10th grade, there's a lot more silliness. There's a little bit more fun atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You can goof around a little mm-hmm. bit more, which I think I think it's good for everyone to have that. Mm-hmm. I think seriousness comes a little bit later in boys' lives and that they settle down a little bit later and, and mm-hmm. mature a little bit later. Let's use that word. That is true. Yeah. 
Um, great. So tell me a little bit about retirement and what are some things that you keep busy with and um, I guess intellectually keep your mind. What, what do you like to do to keep your mind active? Start the day with crossword puzzles and Wordle. Uh, New yeah. York Times crossword? Uh, I use the Wall Street Journal okay. puzzle, which I prefer. Mm-hmm. It is a, I think it's wittier myself, but anyway, that's that's a preference. And, but I do, um, um, uh, anyway, so that uh, starts the day, and then I've always got a book going. I'm reading Harlem Shuffle right now. Mm-hmm. And um, then, um, since I have grandchildren, there's always something cooking about that, taking care of my husband. Um, uh, so... And did I read in the latest, I, I read something online, gardening. Are you into gardening? Oh, yes. I have a wonderful garden that draws me out. Uh, but it's, uh, it's been put to bed so much for this season. Uh, and I be- belong to a couple of organizations that I find myself being the recording secretary for or this, that, and the other. And so I'm trying to use my leadership skills, experience, administrative experiences in some other organizations. So mm-hmm. that's fun. Love it. Yeah, so I I think when you retire, you have to recreate a community for yourself because all of your buddies are still working. Right. And so I definitely see many of my Gilman friends um, for lunches and things like that. But I've also um, gained many new friends through uh, organizations. So you're constantly adapting mm-hmm. in, your, in your life as... Um, as the the, uh, the time span of the day varies now, how do I fill these hours? At the beginning, you're trying to fit in everything or something into every slot, whatever it is. So you're doing a lot of experimentation, whether it's joining a gym or um, taking up um, yoga or something like that, all of which is to the good. And then after a while, you you kind of settle into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. I think finding a schedule, I mean, in your life, I played a sport in college and I always said that I don't know if, I don't know if my grades would have been as good as they were because I played a sport because the sport structured me. And then I had to work around the Mm -hmm. schedule to do my academics. If I didn't have anything, you know, if I just had a wide open schedule, it'd be, I wouldn't do anything. But I try to do something intellectual, something physical, something that feeds my sort of spiritual aesthetic every day, and also try to do something nice for someone every day. That's a good goal. I like, I mean, I think what I said to my leadership character class, there's these lot of, I don't know if they're life lessons, but things to keep in mind in your day to day say something nice to someone do something kind yes it's very important mm-hmm. i'm trying to have them create a uh, handbook leadership character handbook of rules guidelines things they want to return to i guess words to live by um do you have any words to live by that you like to i guess think about no. or return to no, no, I don't. I don't. I wish I could be more helpful. I, I think I've tried to encapsulate it as best I could mm-hmm. just a minute ago. Um, no. 
do the best you can every day. That's great. Yeah. Stay optimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, book recommendation? Do you have a book recommendation for people watching? I have um, one of the best uh, a fiction writers that uh, one of the best uh, books that I've read in the last couple of years was Warlight by Michael Andanche, who wrote The English Patient. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar. I haven't read it. it. I've heard it's so good. It is marvelous. You should read that. Warlight is absolutely intriguing, and this was recommended to me by Jeff Christ, who was the English department chair here for many years. Also, I, on the mystery side, I love um, John Le Carre's last novel called Silver View, which is very captivating. And um, then we all love this series by Mick Herron, the first one being Slough House. So these are sort of off-the-wall recommendations, but not for everybody's taste, but those are mine. That's all right. I mean, I think you're getting me interested in the mystery genre a little bit. <laughs> Give it a try. Give it a try. Give it a try. It'll activate your little gray cells. The English Patient, what is that book about? Because I've heard a lot of people talk about it. It's about people trapped in the desert. But you'll you'll see. Okay, that's it's, all. It's I... about, that's all I'm going to give you. Okay. Interesting. Well, Eva, thank you so much for uh, your time today. I mean, I hope we got to talk about everything that thank I don't know, you. you would have wanted to talk about on a sure. podcast. Um, I appreciate it. I, I thought a lot about, um, I don't know, just your experience at Gilman and, you know, teaching college counseling and then a large leadership position. And, you know, I'm hoping my leadership character class can watch some of this episode and, and learn from some of your words of wisdom i just felt so blessed to be at these schools to work with the wonderful people that uh were were part of that time i can't tell you how appreciative i am Mm -hmm. really feel very very blessed yeah yeah beautiful place well thank you so much appreciate it thank you